Okay, we will look at our scripture, which is 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. If you'll remember, I preached on this passage last week, but didn't get past verse 1. Uh, so now we're going to be preaching part 2 on really verses 2 through 8 in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. So this is Paul preaching to the church, speaking to the church. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is God's word. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the Bible and sex. Uh, two topics that are supposedly taboo if you put them uh, together. Uh, but the reality is the Bible has a lot to say about sex, doesn't it? In fact, uh, the Bible really is the blueprint for understanding what sex is about. We need to really come to grips with the question, is the Bible simply presenting an archaic plan for sex and about sex, or is it relevant to how we are to live today? The truth of the matter is it is God who thought up sex. Long before there was any human being, it is God who made man and woman the way that they are. And it's God who created the context for sex. And when we stay within the God-given context for sex, there is great blessing. But the reality is when we stray outside of the God-given context for sex, there is great harm. God has given us rules to live by, a path to walk in, not to restrict us, but rather to give life to us. And we can obey them and live because God calls us to a holy life and Jesus gives us a new life to be holy with. I'll say it again. God calls us to a holy life and Jesus gives us a new life to be holy with. We're going to answer three questions during our time that we have together here. The first is, number one, what is the will of God regarding sex? What does the Bible really say about how we are to conduct ourselves in this manner? Number two, what are the benefits and blessings of trusting God's plan? In other words, when we walk in accordance with the way that God um, uh, commands us, what are the blessings and benefits that we experience? And then finally, number three, where does the power come from to live a pure life, to push back from the culture and the world that is sending us a particular message while God's word is sending us a different one? Because God calls us to a holy life, Jesus gives us a new life to be holy with. Let's begin with point number one. What is the will of God regarding sex? Last week, we spent a lot of time uh, talking about verse 1, which was all about pleasing God. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus 
that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing. See, the focus was on a relationship between God and man. Man's biggest problem is this, that we live for self, that we have taken God off the throne and we have put ourselves in his place. But this doesn't lead to liberation, it leads to tyranny. Because there is a tyranny of the self, that we are a slave to its appetites and its pleasures, all which never, never truly satisfy. But it is the cross of Jesus Christ that has freed us from the tyranny of self. We have been bought for something new. 1 Peter 1.18 puts it this way. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, we were ransomed from futile ways that we used to live in. That includes futile ways regarding sex. We were ransomed from Satan, from sin, and from self with the precious blood of Christ so that we might belong to another. Romans 7, 4 puts it this way. So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. Notice that we died through Christ that we might belong to Christ, that we might live in a new way in order to bear fruit for God. What Jesus did for us is not simply something spiritual up in the heavenly realms, but is supposed to affect us all the way down to the very fiber of our being, to the very conduct and actions that we perform on a daily basis. So if we were made now, or remade, I should say, to belong to Christ, to bear fruit to God, the question is, how do we do this? How do we please Him? That, of course, is by obeying His commands. 1 John says it very clearly. This is love for God, to obey His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. The rest of the chapter, after this first verse, if you'll notice, I'm now reading, is the practical outworking and application of how we please God in these particular areas. Sex, and then work, and then uh, in the matter of death. And we're covering sex, and then we're going to go into work uh, next week. So it says in verse 2, as I continue on, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that these instructions have already been given. Paul is reiterating them regarding sex. Verse 3 says it and re-says it, if you will, for this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This word abstain, another way to say it, uh, literally would be uh, to make a clean cut. This is the will of God. Couldn't be any plainer than that. That you make a clean cut from sexual immorality. Now, we have to understand the context in which Paul is speaking because I think we can tend to think, oh, well, that was a very Victorian age that they were living back then where uh, sexual temptation and the, the sort of messages that were being out, uh, put out there wasn't anything like our culture. But the reality was the culture that they lived in was far more sexualized than, I, than, than ours. Uh, Paul is writing from Corinth, 
uh, quite possibly in the shadow of the temple of Aphrodite, uh, which would also be known in Roman as the temple of Venus. And Aphrodite was known for employing uh, these, uh, the, the, the sacred prostitutes, if you will. There was a whole sex trade, if you will, that was around the gods and around the temples. And these, these uh, uh, prostitutes would ply their wares, if you will. It was an v- extremely sexualized society. You could not uh, walk through life without being bombarded with it. And in Thessalonica, there was also a cult. The cult of Carib was what it was called, in which a, a majority of the a populace participated in that involved gross sexual immorality. This was a part of the culture in which they lived, more so than ours, which is much more of, a, uh, of an ob- observing culture. It was a participatory culture. But Paul says, for this is the will of God, that you make a clean cut from sexual immorality, not just from sex, but from sexual immorality. The word in Greek for sexual immorality is called porneia, from where we get the word pornography. And it covers a wide variety of sexual activity. It covers things like fornication, which is considered sex before marriage. It covers adultery, which is considered illicit sex in the outside of marriage when you are married. When you when you are married. It, it also covers homosexuality, which is sex beyond marriage. In other words, taking marriage to a place where it is not, or sex where it is not supposed to go. But sexual immorality covers uncleanliness, lewdness, prostitution. It continues on. And we see here this term uh, where it's compared against the Gentiles who behave in passion of lust. In other words, it's not just your actions and activity. Not just your behavior, but the sexual desires that dominate your life in ways that they should not. So sexual immorality has a wide berth. It really covers just about everything about sex that's illicit or related to sex. Because sex, as I have said before, has a God-given context. God created sex for marriage. Remember the man who was, God looked at man and said, it's not good that man is alone. I will make another helper, a strong ally is the word, suitable for him. And God created woman and uh, God walked the first woman down the aisle and gave that woman to the man, remember? And the man praised uh, the woman and they became one flesh and one bone. And uh, and, uh, that was the context that sex was created for in the context of marriage. It was not only created for procreation, but it was created for pleasure. I think that's why the man, when he first saw the woman, named her, whoa, man. That's a horrible joke, but I always do it. Sorry about that. There's a context in which marriage is created, in which sex is for, and that is marriage. But even marriage has restrictions, doesn't it? Marriage is not a form of legalized lust. It's Hebrews 13.4 that says marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Even in the context of marriage, sex is not about satisfying my desires, 
but rather cherishing my partner in the relationship of loving them and caring for them and putting their needs first. Anything counter to that is sexual immorality. And so when the Thessalonians heard this, and often when we hear that, it's a shock to our culture. Infidelity was rampant then. And sexual immorality in our culture is accepted, isn't it? Art, uh, you know, life, art imitates life or art follows or whatever it is, but all you have to do is watch the movies. And, and there is a different code that is communicated to us, right? If two people love each other, well, then it's fine, right? Because they enjoy one another, they love one another, they should enjoy one another as well, irregardless of entering into a lifelong covenant relationship, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. You can be committed to one another as long as you're committed to one another. The sex is paraded as something that is, uh, if you love one another, but also, frankly, if you just feel like it. It's, it's, it's a part of, I can't help myself. It's a part of life. But the reality is we know that there is a cost when you venture outside of the God-given context for sex. We see here where Paul says, let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. See, that's the thing about sex. Whether you're engaging with someone else or you're objectifying or using someone in your mind, you're always harming someone. If it's not in the God-given context, that God has given us. God has a specific will for us regarding sex in the context of marriage, in the context of love and mutual submission to one another. And when it doesn't happen that way, there's always pain and always suffering. I saw this, once, this illustration once, and I think it's very apropos to what sex does when it's used wrong. If you think of two people as two pieces of paper, and we see that Scripture says that when uh, a man and a woman have sex, they become one. It's a, it's, a, it's a tool for oneness. So if I was to take some glue, if you will, and I was to take these two sheets and I was to glue them together, because you remember when, man, when God brought the woman down the aisle, what he said was what God has joined together. Let no man put asunder. When I let those two glue together... They're meant to be as one. But when I decide to try to separate them again, I can't. See, they weren't meant to be separated after they've been joined. This is why God has given us a God-given context for sex. The Bible puts it this way. Let there, but among you, for Ephesians 5, 3, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. What's a hint to you? Am I, um, is God's word in my heart? Have I made a decision that this is what God says and this is what I'm going to follow? Or have I made a decision to capitulate, if you will, just in minor, small ways to the mores 
and the communication of the world around me? When I go on a date, do I trust God's word, which says to treat uh, my sister in Christ with absolute purity, that there would be not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity? Or do I capitulate to the world, to my uh, emotions? The entertainment that I watch, is there a hint of sexual immorality and I find myself entertained by that? Or am I making good decisions? For the Bible says to make a clean cut, right? With sexual immorality. We must acknowledge that there is one context for sex. And that's the context of marriage. That's the way God made it. And when we walk in that path, we find tremendous blessings. This leads me to my second point, the benefits and blessings of trusting God's plan. If God is calling us away from sexual immorality, what is he calling us to? Verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Big word, sanctification. But we know our Westminster Shorter Catechism, which says that sanctification is the work of God's free grace, by which our whole person is made new in the image of God. And we are made more and more able to become dead to sin and alive to righteousness. In other words, this is the will of God, people, your identity. This is who you are and who you are becoming. Sex at its core and sexual activity is not a behavioral issue. It's an identity issue. And who we are because of Christ is our children of God. Remember John 1.12, but to all who received his name, to all who believed him, to all who received him, believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We have a new identity. We have new family rules. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, I am no longer, if I am a Christian, I no longer am a slave to my passions and my lusts. That's who I was. But I am now, through Christ, a master over them. I can give myself not to that, but to another. Romans 6.13 puts it this way, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. It's completely opposite from the Gentiles as it says who do whatever feels right irregardless of how it affects God and ultimately if it hurts others or not. The standard of how we are to control our body is holiness and honor. See that in verse 4? Each of you would know how to control his body in holiness and honor. This word holiness is used twice here in the English. You could actually make the argument it's actually used three times in the original language. The word holiness in Hebrew is kadosh, which means to be set apart for a special purpose. 
Now we think of that as a, as a God word, as a religious word, as a Christian word, but it, it actually isn't. The word Kedesh, which is derived from Kadosh, actually speaks, uh, is a title for a prostitute, to be set aside for a special purpose. In other words, it's a generic term that everything is set aside for some special purpose. We have been set apart to serve God. Notice Revelations 1.6 that says to him, Jesus who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. We have been set aside not only as children of God, but to be priests to God. Did you know that? Did you know that you are a priest if you are a Christian who serves God? I don't know if you've read much of Leviticus, but Leviticus is all about the requirements necessary to come into the presence of God. And they are quite long and litigious. The washings that are necessary, the type of garments that you are to wear, in order to be set apart to serve God. The chief priest, he would wear a turban. And on his turban, there was a, a plate that was made. I think it was made of bronze. And written in Hebrew, and it was to face the front, were the words, holy to the Lord. It's like putting something on your forehead, if you will. That we were made to be holy to the Lord. And our conduct is to reflect that. So it makes sense that there would not even be, should not even be a hint of sexual immorality within us because we are set aside for a specific purpose, to serve God and to honor Him. And when we obey God in this area of sexuality, we experience the blessing of the Lord. Here are four specific blessings that we experience when we walk in faithfulness in this area. Number one, it pleases God. It's how this whole thing started, right? That it brings a smile to God's face. When we make those decisions to walk in holiness in the area of sexuality, it pleases God. Number two, you are acting in line with God's will. And that brings a peace. There's a peace in knowing that I'm acting the way that I am supposed to, that I was made for, that uh, God has made me for this and I'm walking in that way. There's a peace that comes along with that. Number three, it's a way that we receive and we show honor. Notice how it says that down here, uh, that uh, each of you know in holiness and, uh, and uh, honor. It's a way that we show honor to if you are married, to your wife, to other women, if you're a female in marriage, to your husband and other men. Let me speak also to singleness because I've been speaking more in the context of marriage. Everything that I'm saying here applies to whether you're single or whether you're married. If you are single, you have been set apart for a special purpose. And either God, eventually you'll become married again but in the, you are holy to the Lord. There is a plate on your forehead that you are devoted to Him, that you have someone to serve and someone who can fill up all of those empty spaces and holes 
as God will meet all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. The standard is the same and the benefits and the blessings. God just meets them in different ways. We receive and show honor. And finally, number four, we're exhibiting Christian love toward our neighbor. When we sin sexually, we are not seeking the highest good of others. Neither the woman nor the man uh, we sin with, nor the person we fantasize about, nor the person in the pornography, nor the spouse or the parent or any of these. It is not Christian love that moves us in any of this. It is simply selfish desire. But Christians, who you are, are deeply, are people deeply moved by love for others. Christians love people. They don't use them because we've been set aside for a special purpose. I've shared a little bit about uh, the watch that I wear. I don't wear it all the time. This is my father's watch. Uh, he uh, died several years ago. Uh, this is a Rolex that my mother gave to my father in 1962. So this thing is 58 years old, if you will. Here's the thing about it, though. Okay? It's been set apart for a special purpose. Every time I, I look at a picture of me and my father in it, he's always wearing this watch. And so I wear this watch to remind me of my father. I got it restored when he passed away. There was no way that I could afford one like it. There's no way that I really wanted one. Uh, but because it's my dad's, I wear it. But it is 58 years old. And so that means when I'm going out to chop wood, I'm not going to be wearing this watch. It means when I'm going camping, I'm not going to be wearing this watch. No, I wear it only on occasions kind of like this or a regular day-to-day -day life because it's been set apart for a special purpose. You too have been set apart for a special purpose. The body that God has given you has been given for a reason and has specific rules. It's made for him. And in the context of sex and one's body, sex is a beautiful thing. It's a sacred thing. It's meant to be a blessing, but it must be handled correctly. Must, must be used in the proper place, in the proper time, in the proper way. So when you, if you're a high schooler or a college student, are going on a date, or you're tempted by those images on the computer, I think that goes for anyone, all of us, including me, right? Remember, you've been set apart for a special purpose. God wants all of you for all of himself. And when you make those decisions to honor the Lord, it pleases God and it honors other people. This brings me to my final point. Where is the power for purity? The power for purity can be found in verse 5. That we are to behave not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
See, the reason they behave in the passion of lust is because they do not know God. Knowing God is the secret to living a holy life. I'm not talking about knowing 10,000 facts about God. It's very different than knowing God himself. See, knowing God is the path to sexual purity because the purpose of sex and the purpose of the body is to magnify the supreme worth of God and the infinite value of Jesus Christ. In other words, God is not just interested in what you do with your bodies. He's interested in why you do it. And the decisions you make when you decide why you're doing it, far more important than how or when you're doing it, right? Gave that illustration last week of a kid whose friends were trying to get him to take a rock and throw it through a window. Kid said, I'm not going to do it. Well, you're chicken. Well, I'm not chicken. I'm just not going to do it. Well, you're afraid of your dad. You're afraid of what he's going to do to you when he finds out that you threw that rock through the window. And the kid said, no, no, no. I'm not afraid of what he's going to do to me. I'm afraid of what it would do to him to hear that I threw that rock through the window. See, when you get to know God, you know his holiness, his goodness, his love for you, what he's done and the plan he has for your life. The reason I choose to live the way that I do is because I know him and I love him and I want to follow him. Consider Jesus who endured the cross, scorning its shame. God calls us to a holy life and Jesus gives us a new life to be holy with. This is one of the most important parts of life. So when you decide to give your sexuality to God, you decide to honor Jesus Christ. He gives you the power to live, not only to say no, but to say yes to him. Let our lives be marked with holiness and purity and honor in the way that we handle our bodies. For this is God's will for us. And this is the way that we please God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, which is as clear as day of how we are supposed to act. God, let us not fall down this slippery slope of this world that seeks to entrap us. But rather, let us use sex only for its God-given context, trusting that you are the one who meets all of our needs. You are the one uh, that fulfills our hearts, that gives us new life and new hope. And that as we trust you and walk in your ways and follow you, that we will experience and receive your blessing. Pray all of these things in Christ's name.